0: Well a warm welcome to this encephalitis podcast. In this episode I'm delighted to welcome back a friend of the podcast and the Encephalitis Society, Professor Benedict Michael. Ben is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Liverpool, a medical research council clinician scientist and honorary consultant neurologist at the Walton Centre which is also in Liverpool. But perhaps most importantly Ben is vice president of our scientific advisory panel at the Encephalitis Society, undoubtedly his most important job, helping us drive forward our research agenda and organising things like the GoTo Global Encephalitis Conference each year and many other important areas of our work. Today, though, we've brought Ben here to talk about the COVID-19 Clinical Neuroscience Study. This was a 2.3 million research study looking into acute neurological and neuropsychiatric complications of COVID-19. Before we get to that, however, I have to congratulate Ben on the very important moment in his career, his appointment as Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Liverpool. So congratulations and thanks for joining me, Ben.
1: That's great. Thanks for having me. It's very kind.
0: Does Professor Benedict Michael have a nice ring to it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think I'd do it south of 40, so that was a bit of a shock.
0: (laughs) Well, sincere congratulations. We've worked together for a a long time, so all of us at the Encephalitis Society are absolutely thrilled for you. Um, Many of our uh, listeners, though, however, won't know about the process of moving from doctor to professor. What does it involve? How do you get to be a professor?
1: Um, Well, I mean, the short answer is um, they give you a chair because you've done an awful lot of running and you need to sit down. So basically, you run for a long time. So I started my medical training in 2001, so over 20 years ago now. Medical degree, junior doctor jobs. Um, I was very fortunate, in fact, to get this, what was new at the time, thing called an academic clinical fellowship which actually effectively gave you just a few months of the year off the ward. So you could start learning a bit about research and, um, and uh, you know, and I was very lucky to have, you know, excellent mentors, you know, Prof. Tom Solomon, Prof. Ray Borrow, Prof. Andy Lustre, Evan Kurt-Jones, you know, it's been, you know, you don't, uh, Angela Vincent, you know, you don't get to, uh, you know, anywhere really without, you know, great mentors and advisors supporting you. So I did a PhD on encephalitis. Um, then uh, I got a lectureship where you're 50% a doctor and 50% a scientist. After my PhD, then I spent a couple of years in the US learning some sort of pretty hardcore science in a, under the supervision of a very very scary immunology professor. Um, and then came back to the UK and got uh, a reader position, which uh, I think is the most demoralising of titles. It's like you've done all this work, a medical degree, PhD, and now you can read. Uh, but I got a, but a reader is that. Reader is the sort of last post we have in the UK, what the Americans would call an associate professor. Um, uh, And then, um, you know, it's been a lot of working with with the the society, a lot of patient outreach, um, a lot of public engagement and awareness raising. Uh, And also, you know, we never tell the junior researchers the truth, but you're you're a one person startup, effectively, trying to come up with good scientific ideas that address an important clinical problem and convince funders that you're worth investing in that this project of yours is worth investing in, both you and the work you propose to do and the people you're employing to help you deliver it. Um, And then you finally reach a point where, um, yes, uh, well, basically I applied for for an award to be an emerging leader. uh, And they wrote back to me from the panel and said, um, I'm afraid you're not emerging, you're emerged. (laughs) And then I think at that point, the the university very kindly uh, thought that I probably reached the point where I could um, take the next step. The final step, oh, I
0: guess. and not before time. I can vouch for all of those things that you've just said. I uh, one day I will, when I've got time, look back and and try and work out exactly how long it is um, that I've known you. But I know it's it's a long it's a long long time. Um, but today, you very kindly joined me to update us on the COVID-19 Clinical Neuroscience Study, or we've been calling it COVID-CNS for short. Um, this is a really important study, so many people affected by COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic. So can you give us a little bit of background to this study, how it came about and what its aims are?
1: Yeah, so I mean, many of the, the listeners and viewers will recall the H1N1 pandemic um, that happened a few years back and um i was um sort of middle grade doctor at the time and got involved in trying to do a uk wide surveillance study as to whether there would be brain complications of h1n1 and we ran the study for 2 years and we only recruited 25 people into the study and they were i think 21 or 23 of them were children very very few adults had brain complications but it was enough to alert us to the idea that at least in some people there might be brain complications of any viral infection even if the virus doesn't get into the brain um and then obviously we all started hearing what was happening in Wuhan and then we had all our uh, you know our our rich colleagues coming back from italy with their from their skiing holidays with covid um and then we had started hearing about cases in new york and as soon as as soon as we had um some verifiable cases from colleagues in continental europe and the us that we were seeing brain complications of the virus it was very clear that uh, and, and also, given the speed of the virus's transmission, just the the sheer number of people who were likely to get infected meant that even if complications were rare. We really might have something that could be a problem here, and we'd have to mobilize really rapidly if we were going to to, to you know, be able to capture that. Uh, and as it happened there ended up being uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in the UK. Uh, affected from a brain point of view uh, that we're in our study and and of course many many more that we didn't even uh, even hear about
0: and of course we know that some of those people experienced encephalitis um, as a result of COVID-19 but it it looks Um, The study looks at a variety of areas, um, lots of of, uh, posh words, neurology, neuropsychiatry, genomics, neuroimaging, neurovirology, biomarkers and immunology and neurocognition. So, um, you know, I'm uh, uh, working with you on this study as well. Um, It's really comprehensive, isn't it? The the vast array of areas that your study is looking at.
1: Yes, I mean, when you've got an emergent phenomena like COVID, the honest answer is you have to keep an open mind about what the potential complications might be. And I think I'd learned from the uh, from the previous the H1N1 study that we couldn't just be neurology. We couldn't, I mean, I'm an adult neurologist. We couldn't just be adult neurology. We definitely have to include paediatrics. Then we hard, started hearing um, cases of stroke from COVID um and encephalitis and then we had to get the stroke team board and then we had people with psychosis and psychiatric problems that so we had definitely had to get the royal college of psychiatrists um and then there were all these people in intensive care so we needed a, the intensive care societies and through that early surveillance work it became apparent that there was a real broad spectrum of potential complications and the only way you get at understanding the biology of such a broad range of complications is really coming at and from a multifaceted angle you know how much is the virus how much is it the person's genetics how much is it the person's immune response um and uh, and and really the fundamental point is that we can't target treatments if we don't know the biology so that's why we've had to be very very comprehensive and on that point briefly i should thank all the people that have joined the study Um, Because, you know, for many of them, they've suffered a brain injury like encephalitis, and they can be with our research assistants for half a day or longer for a single assessment so that we can cover neurology, their cognition and thinking, psychiatric phenomena, be in a a dark tunnel, having an MRI scan for 45 minutes, have your blood taken, you know, all these different things which can take an awfully long time and be very draining. So, you know, I think on behalf of the whole team, I, I have to really thank all the patients that have been part of the study.
0: Absolutely. Um, And there's a lot of patients. We'll we'll come on to uh, exactly how many
1: you've uh, recruited.
0: Your team are are concentrating on the neurological aspects. We have seen acute neurological uh, complications of COVID-19. And by acute, we mean at that early stage of of having uh, the virus um, affecting up to 30 percent of hospitalized patients. Can you talk a little bit more about
1: that and what you found? Yeah, so we found that about 30% of people whilst they're hospitalised with COVID, um, and we focused on the hospitalised patients because they're easier to study, right, they're they're in the hospital, we can see them, we know what their blood results look like, what their scans look like, etc. But about 30% have neurological symptoms. And that can range from things like headaches, to muscle aches, to numbness and tingling, um, which we think are probably, hopefully transient. But then there's about 10% that what we would say rather than neurological symptoms is a neurological syndrome so a good example of that would be something like delirium so this is when someone's confused whilst they're hospitalized and sick not because of indirect effects on the brain so that could be a lack of oxygen because of breathing problems it could be kidney dysfunction because they're sick um and that causes the brain to, to malfunction for a short period of time but it can be very distressing and it can leave people with ptsd and other things like that But then there was this about 1% we were really, really interested in and worried about in equal measure, uh, where they had these really severe brain complications, where there was brain inflammation, like encephalitis, uh, and also a a sort of form of encephalitis called ADEM, uh, which is a bit like a a sort of very severe one-off hit of uh, of multiple sclerosis-like disease, um, which is another brain inflammation uh, disorder, sort of on the encephalitis spectrum really. Uh, and then we had these really complicated patients who had both encephalitis and a stroke, or they had encephalitis and you know, um, and they but they looked psychiatric. So you know, it, there was this real muddle of, of different things going on. And the first thing we had to do was start to tease that out wherever we could.
0: Yeah, Um, one of the the questions that uh, that we've been asked quite a lot were were. Are the you know, we've seen all these different strains of of COVID-19. Do the different strains have different impacts on patients or did it did it not matter what strain it was that you were still seeing the same pattern uh, in patients?
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question. And that's one of the things we're looking at now. We to do that properly, you need to know the specific strain of virus in a specific patient and their specific uh, complications that's the sort of data we're working on now, but I can tell you we're starting to see trends already. So um, we published a paper um, uh, only a couple of days ago, in fact, where we looked at the rates of brain complications over the course of the pandemic. And really reassuringly, we've seen the rates of hospitalized brain complications fall, not month on month, but there is a consistent trend that over the last two and a bit years of the pandemic, gosh, more than that, two and a half years of the pandemic, uh, we've seen rates of these brain complications decline. Now, that we think that's in part changes in the strain of the virus, but it's also probably other things as well. People have got better immunity because they've had COVID before or hopefully they've had their vaccination. And also we're treating patients differently. So your uh, listeners and viewers will probably have heard of the anti-inflammatory drug dexamethasone, which we know reduces lung inflammation and also the antiviral drug called remdesivir. And what our research has shown is that when when these are given either individually or together, the rates of brain complications have dra- dramatically declined. So whilst these drugs are being prescribed for virus and inflammation in the lung, we're getting some, some early and really interesting and exciting signal that actually they're affecting viral control throughout the body and brain inflammation. Now, more work to be done, but that's a really exciting avenue because dexamethasone is you know, we've had it for an awfully long time, it's cheap as chips, you know, we can scale it up to those countries, even with um, more challenging medical infrastructure to deal with. And if we see that dexamethasone not just protects the lung, but also protects the brain, you know, that's a really, really important finding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, I don't know when, whether many listeners and viewers will realise actually how difficult it is when you do these studies to recruit patients into studies. It's actually, I think, it's the one thing that keeps people like you um, awake at night quite often. Recruitment, because if you don't recruit to the numbers that you say that you're going to recruit to, invariably funding is 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 removed, is taken away. So recruitment is really um, really critical. Now you had um, you you had a recruitment target of of 800 um, patients, Um, how did it go? I mean, have you reached that? You know, how did
1: recruitment go? Uh, It was a challenge, you're absolutely right. Um, But due to the hard work of our our research assistants and all the junior doctors that helped, we actually went through our target of 800 and we've got 818 participants. Uh, So we actually slightly overshot, which is, uh, yeah, I can assure you is very, very rare. Um, But there was a lot of hard work, um, and you know what, I hope that no lessons can be learned from the pandemic about the time it takes from developing a research grant, applying, having it evaluated, interviewing, getting that grant funded, uh, getting ethical approval, and then you've got to get approvals for each individual site that's going to recruit, Um, and we had um, over a dozen sites around the country and the rules are different in england and wales and scotland and ireland um and you've got to get legal agreements between us in liverpool the main site and each individual site and then you can recruit a patient and i forget the statistics now but it's something awful I and mean, you probably know them better than i from the point of writing the grant or getting the funding awarded to recruiting the first patient in most treatment trials is something crazy like a year or two and you just don't have the luxury of that time in an emergent pandemic when cases are rising exponentially. So um, no, but it was hard work from from just a really really great team, and also the participants wanted to be in the study. I think that's really important. Most people we approached wanted to wanted to help wanted to contribute. They felt that this was really an opportunity to um, you know use their lived experience to to help inform science and doctors and improve patient care in the future.
0: Mm well i think a great team but i think a great leader as well i remember when you were putting this study together we, and i'm sure people didn't tell you at the time but you know there were whisperings that this couldn't be done um and certainly not as swiftly as you did it so uh you know many congratulations um and i think you're right i think we see this a lot with encephalitis patients as well uh, they're super keen to be involved because they don't want people going through what they've been through so hats off to those people as well who'd already been to hell and back um, and then, as you say, put them through, put themselves through, uh, you know, a huge range of, of of testing for the benefit of of everybody, not just in the United Kingdom, but around the
1: world. On, on that point, before we move on briefly, I, what I did skip over <laughs> uh, is, uh, is that we did have problems with recruitment at different stages for different reasons. Um, but I think that this is probably the study where we've had the most patient and public engagement, you know, and I should thank you, of course, Ava, as chair of our PPI panel and on all the other people on that panel who have either lived experience or uh, experience working in the third sector because if we hadn't designed our patient information leaflets and our, our website and uh, our lay summary and all of this in a way that was engaging, uh, understandable uh, and inviting then you know we wouldn't have had uh, as many patients wanting to come forward. Well,
0: thanks Ben. I mean, you know, I I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I was very honoured when you approached me early on um, to to chair and lead the patient and public involvement element of the study, but um, I I think people might be interested, people that are listening might be interested. Why was that important to you? And what contributions to the study do you believe our patient and public involvement uh, panel and group have made?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I was a junior researcher when this whole concept of patient and public engagement or patient public involvement or PPI or PPIE or whatever acronym you want to give it was starting to come on board. And I think it's fair to say the vast majority of the older researchers thought that this was just something you had to do. There'd always be a box on the grant. You just had to stick some, tick your 200 words in and uh, and that w- and that would get, you know, tick the box of PPI and get you funded. Um, but I was fortunate to come up through the NI, the National Institute for Health Research School of Thought, where actually what one wants to do is involve PPI at each stage of the research cycle. If you're going to have a successful study, so that's you know coming up with the idea, that's writing the grant, that's defending the grant, uh, that's writing all the patient information leaflets, that's engaging with the sites, and because this is a what we call a longitudinal study, so we're following these people up over time to see how they recover or uh, or if they don't. Um, we need them not just to be wanting to join our study once we need them to want to stay engaged, um, and that's about the sort of last part of that cycle, which is where you you engage with um, what we call in the field dissemination, which is how we get what we're finding out to the public um, and out to the people who've been involved in the study, so you know they you, <laughs> any human being needs to feel like if they put something in, particularly as much as these guys are put in that they're getting something back they understand. How things are moving forward so um yeah and I think we've been really fortunate to have PPI at, at I think every single one of those those research uh stages even though it was particularly frenetic in the first six to twelve months.
0: Yeah yeah it has and you know hats off to um the patient organizations like um the encephalitis society who you know second people like me to to be able to come and and do patient and public involvement. You know, sometimes we we do get our time um, covered, but uh, this study had to get off the ground and had to get off really quickly. So, um, so yeah. So, thanks to uh, thanks to the Encephalitis Society trustees as well. You know, who've let me done this. It's it was I was busy before, but it's been no no mean feat. But um, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it on this study actually. Um, How long does the study have left to run? And when can we expect some kind of final final analyses or results?
1: So um, the the study will run as long as I run. (laughs) So the the hope is um, the next phase of the study is we we, we started to study the, as you 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 say, the acute, the hospitalised early complications. Um, where, Where we're at now is studying the biology. The next stage is we're studying the recovery, and then the very last stage is we want to know what does having had a viral infection like COVID um, mean for our brain as we age. So actually, I'm hopeful that we'll have many PhD students and other, you know, junior doctors working their way through these data um, until I'm, I'm in my dotage.
0: Well, actually, you touch upon an important point there because um, you and I have both participated in in many conversations um, with scientists and clinicians and researchers about whether the full ramica- ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, is, is this it? Is what we've seen it or are there going to be other things to follow um, in the coming years? And I think some of the things that people have alluded to is whether they would see other neurological complications as people age that we don't see at the moment. But as a result of COVID-19, um, is that something you believe is the case also? Do you think do you think what we see is it or do you think there's a potential that other things are going to crawl out of the woodwork as the next couple of decades go come on?
1: Yes, I mean, well, people will be perhaps aware of the phenomenon of what was called encephalitis lethargica, which is after the the Spanish flu pandemic um, back in the early 1900s, there were a group of patients who developed a a delayed Parkinson's-like problem with slowness and stiffness and tremor and and those sorts of things. Um, Because of the nature of the time, we weren't really able to get at what was causing that. So I think the honest answer is we, we don't know what 10 years from now will look like from COVID, but we can draw analogies from what we know from other viral infections um, and also perhaps other brain injuries that cause brain inflammation, like traumatic brain injury, for example. And there is a school of thought that when the virus induces inflammation in the body, even if the virus doesn't get in the brain, it can induce inflammation in the brain. And we often think about inflammation in the brain in encephalitis sort of classically as immune cells coming from the blood and going into the brain and causing the swelling. Um, but actually, I think ever increasingly, we recognize that you can get a brain inflammation where you don't even need immune cells to come from the bloodstream into the brain. It's actually the immune cells already inside the brain. These little cells we call microglia. These are, these are immune cells that don't swish around your body like most immune cells. They live in the brain. Um, and we've got some early data that detects uh, that shows that in covid particularly at the very severe end of the spectrum and of course in humans we can only see those people who've died so of course the by definition the very severest end of the spectrum these immune cells have become activated uh, and there is there is brain inflammation happening at the very severe end and there is a school of thought or at least hypotheses that once that's happened it perhaps can set up a, a low-grade process that might uh, perhaps if someone was going to develop Um, Dementia later in life anyway, for the multitude of reasons that that's caused, perhaps they might develop that dementia earlier or in a different way because they've had this this insult. What's happened before is we've we've never had so many people infected with the same virus at the same time. So it's been particularly hard to study that. And whilst we all hope that's not the case, it's very much an area of active research and it's something that we will be looking at actively as we follow Covid CNS participants up as 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 they age.
0: You were heavily involved in in the treatment and care of of patients in Liverpool. And I know I I think, you know, there isn't probably a family um, who hasn't been touched by Covid in in some way. Do, Do you have any personal reflections on on the pandemic at all, Ben?
1: Yeah, I mean, so many (laughs) how long have we got but um no I think there were a number of there were a number of really really challenging situations and relatively early on in the pandemic um in the hospitals I work in you you know we we did lose staff members um to that that first and second wave of the pandemic um uh, and it was you know it was uh, obviously incredibly tragic Um, um Yeah, perhaps it's because we've got an NHS, you know, as opposed to some other countries. It was there was a wartime mentality and every I've always joked that to the junior doctors when they start and I do their induction, that the NHS runs on tins of quality street, cups of tea and shoe leather, (laughs) because, you, you know, that it's goodwill. Really, that's what that's what's made. And well, I guess we can see it coming to a crunch now with, you know, the strikes that are proposed. But, you know, people have felt, I think, undervalued. But at the time everyone just mobilized you know you'd go onto the ward and then you know at least where i worked we had many many more doctors than we needed as it turned out um and we had in the end to sort of start scaling back how the shifts were rated because we just didn't need as many people as were willing to to come in and, and do the extra hours for, for for no extra pay just because you know um, we're in nhs yeah
0: bloody love the nhs right anybody who slags it off shame on you Love the NHS. Um, And I think, you know, you and I travel a lot as well. And it is when you go to other countries, actually, and see the health infrastructures in other countries that that I always come back and I'm super grateful um, for our our healthcare system. Um, And I sincerely hope that we get a government soon that can sort it out. I will not get on my political soapbox. (laughs) Um, uh, Do you think this is the greatest health emergency of our lives?
1: Um, well, look, there's, there's been so many, hasn't there? I mean, you think of the HIV epidemic, you think of the epidemic, the other, you know, big emerging infections of what they could have been if, you know, developed countries hadn't acted fast to help support the very brave people in those developing countries. I'm thinking of things like Ebola and Zika, um, but, um, and of course, we had CJD, didn't we? And and, and prion disease, and all the concerns uh, around that. Um, but that being said, I mean, this was genuinely a once in a century phenomena, and we hope it won't be any more frequent than that. But the the psych- this wasn't our first pandemic. Obviously, we've talked about encephalitis lethargica, and there were others. We've never lived in a more interconnected world, both in terms of the way produce moves and the way people move around the world, um, and with climate change and what that might mean for the movement and migration of animal populations, um, wealth inequality and what that might mean for uh, humans living in close proximity with animals and in poverty and malnourishments and all that that tinderbox environment that you need for for pandemics to to occur, um, you know this uh, this isn't the last pandemic we'll see, um, but you know I think we have. Really learned an awful lot of important lessons from it in a way that wasn't possible in previous pandemics, in part because of the science, but also in part because of the interconnectedness. You know, you and I've been on—I don't know how many gazillion calls with the World Health Organization uh, and with the Global Neuro Research Coalition. You know, all these people giving their their free free time, giving their time for free. Um, you know, around all corners of the world, and even in countries where there's conflict, um, we've seen people. Turning up to these meetings, engaging, you know, working together, and um, yeah, look, we're all floating on a rock in space. The sooner the sooner we realise we've all got to work together, uh, the better. And I, if there's anything good that's come out of COVID, I guess that's it. There's been a scientists' our whole career is to fight and kill each other. That's our that's our job is to discover that thing and publish that paper before anyone else does, and get the grant money so someone else doesn't. So you can publish their next paper. And every university is fighting with each other, and even within universities, scientists are fighting with each other, um, racing for the prize. Um, but that all stopped in COVID, mm. by and large, not everywhere, but by and large, um, yeah, people got together, scientists and clinicians and our partners in the third sector, like the Encephalitis Society, really around the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh I agree. I agree completely. Um Yeah, so I'm going to just divert a little bit. We're coming towards the end of the the podcast. Um, It is, I think, is it what day am I on today? Thursday. It is two weeks to the encephalitis conference in London on the 1st of December, and we have our satellite meetings now, how to get your grant um, opportunity for the poster presenters to engage with peers and things on the 30th of November. Um, I mean, I'm quite proud when I rock up at the Royal College of Physicians now for our conference. Um, What's your your experience been of, of how that conference has grown to I think, arguably, now the go-to a- a conference on encephalitis in the world. What well, you've watched it, you've been there almost from day one. What's your What's your take on it?
1: I mean, it's been genuinely amazing. Um, you know, it's it, um, you know relatively humble beginnings. I think <clears> we sort of borrowed some space from a charitable donor and had an office and uh, and and had some presentations. Um, But now it is genuinely, as I would agree with you, 100% is the go to international conference for encephalitis in the world um, with fantastic speakers. You know, your team do a great job um, getting, you know, the the very best experts from around the world to talk about the very latest uh, in encephalitis. And it's not just for doctors. It's for, you know, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, social workers, people who do basic science on cells in a dish all the way through to people that do. Uh, you know, studies and, and support humans, um, uh, and also you know people that work on animal infections as well, and what that might mean. So, you no, know, it really is a very, very broad church. And um, well, I can tell you, every single one of my team has my ever-growing team wants to come. So I'm furiously trying to find how I can pay for their train tickets and uh, and uh, and hotels because they all desperately want to be there in person. But you know, we live in a hybrid world, and isn't it great that we can actually reach all these people? Because I think there are bursaries as well for some people to come uh, to the conference. Um, But even if you can't, there's, um, you know, there's been, you know, great engagement from around the world virtually. Um, And, you know, that's absolutely super.
0: Yeah, you're right. We we do offer bursaries, so free uh, places, free digital places for people from low to middle income countries but also um for your team as well we mustn't forget ben that as you said it's hybrid now people can join digitally and one of the great benefits of joining digitally i mean we want people there in person because we like talking to people and we have our drinks reception at the end and we get to catch up with you know old faces and new faces but for those that do um join uh digitally they've got up to 30 days to watch the lectures back afterwards so you know really busy jobbing or researchers can still sign up and still, you know, um, pick and choose the lectures that they want to watch um, when they've got time. So, I I don't think we can make it any easier.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's amazing that you keep the costs down as well. I mean, you compare the costs to an average conference. uh, You know, it's really amazing given how much work goes into delivering. You know, such a complicated hybrid conference with um, speakers from all over the world and delegates from all over the world. I mean, it is genuinely amazing, and I. Perhaps that's also part of the success of it, you know, you've made it accessible, not just financially accessible, but accessible to people from very different backgrounds and disciplines. Um, A bit like, well, well, I guess we're ending where we started, you know, we're bringing together neurology, psychiatry, psychology, you know, intensive care, it was, you know, that's what made our research in COVID a success, Um, and, you know what's made this conference such a great success that and the bloody graft of you and the team.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Um, yeah, it is. It is. It has become a beer moth, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, you're right. Also thank you to the funders. Um, you know, the, uh, the encephalitis society bankrolls are a good part of it, but, but we also have um, wonderful funders like the guarantors of brain and the, the shares foundation who we're super grateful for, but look, Ben, we're at the end of our uh, end of our podcast. So I shall finish as as I always do asking you if there's anything else that you'd like to say um, about what we've been talking about, about the study or about the encephalitis society or anything else um, before we wrap up.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, as you mentioned before, I've been part of the encephalitis society from a junior doctor, then a trustee, and then a researcher and, and now vice chair of the scientific advisory panel. And it really has just grown exponentially year on year. And the research that we do and the the discoveries we make and the impact it has for patients affected by encephalitis, genuinely none of that would be possible without the Encephalitis Society. So huge thanks to you and your team and also to echo your words and and thank the funders and all those people that that go out there, that jump out of airplanes, that run marathons, uh, you know, that do corporate donations, everyone that supports um, the charity, um, because, you know, as you say, you, you, it's a global charity it's not just a global conference it's a glo- it's the global charity for encephalitis so you know you can't deliver that without great people and, and support
0: well thank you ben really appreciate that thank you for taking the time to join us today on the encephalitis podcast as ever your company is a pleasure i'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks um if people want more information on the study ben uh, where can they go
1: uh, well, there's the encephalitis society website, of course, which has a huge amount of information about encephalitis, COVID and otherwise. Um but if you'd like to learn a bit more specifically about our study, you can either go to covidcns.org uh, or follow us on Twitter. Um, uh, or follow me on Twitter and I'll link you in with that. With, uh, we try to keep all of our data coming out pretty fluid, even as as you know, we're making new discoveries. So um, do engage with us in the Encephalitis Society on Twitter and you hear the very latest, not just about COVID and our study, uh, but about encephalitis research and support and awareness raising more generally.
0: Yeah, we've got some some good plans for um, dissemination. So getting some of the findings of the COVID CNS study out. So we're working on that as we speak. Um, the Encephalitis Society remains at your service. So if you need any support or information, our teams are always there for you. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online with one of the team. We're hoping, as ever, that you enjoyed this podcast. And if you can support our life-saving, award-winning work, then we would be very, very grateful trust me lurching from a pandemic into a cost of living crisis is no mean feat Um, and we have we have no product to sell other than our our information and our services so if you can donate please do so at encephalitis.info forward slash donate thank you very much everybody